Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. Hi, it's Kirsty here. This is the third episode in our six-part series on The Good Society, where we unpack the current systems we live, work and play within and ask how they can do better and be better for people on the planet. We're exploring how head, heart and hands can unite to deliver us a thriving society. This week, Barry talks to Oliver Berkman. Oliver is a British journalist who lived for a long time in Brooklyn and New York, but he's now back in the UK. For many years, he was a columnist for The Guardian newspaper, where he wrote a column about productivity, finding ways to hack ourselves and draw the most out of our output. But all of that research prompted bigger questions in Oliver, and from those questions about the deeper meaning of life, his latest book was born. 4,000 Weeks is all about time management for people who don't live forever, and it starts with the acceptance that we can't do everything. So given that reality... What truly great options can we take off the table right now? Grieve that road not taken and also build a good life. I hope you enjoy this conversation with journalist and author Oliver Berkman. You're in England, obviously. Yeah. My condolences for Queen's death. Thank you very much. I'm not someone who's deeply personally feeling bereaved, but it's kind of a big moment in the culture. Well, yeah. yeah, it's a big moment in the culture and also in terms of your work and just to say to everyone who's listening to our conversation, I have told everybody who's asked me for a book recommendation in the last month, you have to read 4,000 Weeks. It's the best and I've really loved it. I'm so excited that we get to talk to each other and The Queen's Death is actually looking at what you talk about in your book, the main thing that everyone's talking about is what a life well lived. She got 4,000 weeks. Like you're saying, a good long life is 4,000, give or take. Uh, Yeah, I think she was into the 5,000, wasn't she, by her age. And also just that sense of continuity, whatever you think about the monarchy, the sheer fact that one person has been in the background of all our lives and very nearly all my parents' generation's lives, not many people alive anywhere today who can remember clearly the monarch prior to her. So it suddenly reminds you again of transience and actually nothing is permanent. And it's that sudden strange feeling like this is a terribly crass analogy, but that moment when some background noise like an air conditioning unit stops and you didn't realize that it was making a noise until the moment that it stops, there's a stability, I think, that people are experiencing the end of here that they didn't realize they were necessarily benefiting from until it's not there anymore. It's funny, it's analogous to the planet, isn't it? And like stable climate and the things that hold the long arc of time in our short lives. We lean on all those constants. Absolutely. And we don't necessarily value them while we are relying on them. Also, you know, in lots of ways, 
I think the queen as an individual person embodied lots of character traits that are not universally great. I think that kind of British stolidity and constancy does very easily become emotional repression. And there's plenty of emotional repression and its consequences in the English royal family. But there are very positive things about it. And it is extremely the opposite of the personalities boosted and encouraged on social media today, for example. It's beginning to feel quite old fashioned, some of those values. Yeah, but then some of them are really in in all the rage, like stoicism. Well, that's interesting. I mean, what the stoicism with a capital S, you know, the rediscovery yeah. of the ancient Greek and Roman philosophy. Again, I have mixed opinions about that, but definitely I think part of what that is, is the response to a hunger for something that has an aspect of discipline to it. Yeah, I love looking at a long life and what is a life well lived. And that feels like your book. Honestly, I would love to do a six-month course on your book. How to take out all of the nuggets of goodness and like just practice them. I'm working on it. Are you really? In a very, very early sense. But yes, I want to know more about what you want that course to have in it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's like what everyone's feeling with the Queen's death and those reflections. It's not just stoicism, but it's a life of service and contribution in many ways. A funny thing to say because she had all the trappings of wealth and monarchy, but she was quite simple. She said the things that gave her joy, that brought her genuine nourishment and joy were being in the wild Mm -hmm. with not a building in sight in the fresh air embodied on the moors, granted, very romantic setting, but there just seems to be, and your book as well, talks to that this longing in all of us for meaning and purpose, especially post-pandemic. One other thought that occurs about her life and the life of anyone in that position, it's obviously impossibly privileged and comfortable, and we shouldn't fool ourselves about that. But it's also, in a certain sense, incredibly constrained. This thing that I'm always coming back to, I feel like, in the book and elsewhere, about how constrained we are by accident of birth and where we find ourselves, all the things we can't change about our life situation and why that's worth being aware of and not sort of trying to live in denial of. It's true absolutely in that role. It's like, obviously, it's very, very high power role, very privileged, very comfortable role. But on the other hand, a lack of realistic career choice that most of us would consider to be outrageous. You know, it's like you're born, you succeed to the throne and you've got to do this. Now, obviously, you can do it in different ways. But I think that's a really interesting way to think about it. It's sort of like a very luxurious prison in a way, I feel like being any part of the British royal family. So hilarious talking about the royals. But I have ear tagged half the book. I would love you to frame what the book is about because I'm going to have a hard time doing it because I'm like, we need to talk about this chapter and this chapter. But I love (laughs) just in the contents, right? I was like, that is actually all I've been thinking about since the pandemic has lifted here in Australia. And that bit that I've highlighted in the contents, in the long run, we're all dead. (laughs) It's so great. Because that's what I have been thinking about and I've been a bit nihilistic, like it took me to all these places, but in the long run we're all dead hedonism. In the long Mm. run we're all dead nihilism and now I'm in the third phase. (laughs) Which I hope is more positive than uh, than nihilism. Um, We're all dead, this is so precious, so what do we do now? Yeah, and that line, it's attributed generally to John Maynard Keynes, who I quote in a number of other places in the book. And I think that in context, it's a pushback against the idea that things should be analysed ultimately only in terms of the long run. A certain policy might cause a lot of suffering right now, but in the long run, it's going to be good. A certain way of living might feel meaningless right now, but in the long run, it'll lead to a life of meaning. And this reminder, well, in the long run, we're all dead 
doesn't mean that you shouldn't plan for the future or take a long-term perspective. I think we should in all sorts of ways that we don't. There's a way that our obsession with personal productivity, especially, but other people as well who don't have that obsession, there's a way in which we end up putting all the value of any moment that we live onto how it's going to cash out later. And if you go all in on that perspective, then you lose any meaning, right? Because it's always only the present. And there has to be some understanding that like, no, this is it. We're alive now and we might not be soon and we definitely won't be in the long run. So I think it's a real reminder of where the value and meaning of life has to be located in the end. So take us a little bit on a journey. I know you've probably said this before, but you were a productivity geek for The Guardian. Oh, yeah. This is what you did. You wrote about it. You thought about it. And then what got you from there to writing this book? Well, I mean, yeah. And in a way, this book is like the confessions of a recovering productivity geek. In some ways, I still am, right? So I wrote this column for The Guardian for well over a decade, which was not only about time management and productivity. It was about self-help, happiness, psychology, all sorts of stuff. But there was this theme of how do we best organize our time? And I was one of those people, there are many, I'm sure there are some listening, who are really into the idea of finding the perfect time management technique that's going to bring peace of mind and allow you to accomplish all your most cherished goals and meet everyone's demands and feel like you're being a good parent as well as a good worker and all the rest of it. The difference when you're writing a weekly column like that is that you get to indulge this slightly neurotic, slightly addictive thing, which you get to indulge it with the excuse that it's for work, right? It's brilliant because you've got to read these things and test these things out because that's your job. So it's a bit like being an alcoholic employed to write wine reviews. It's very convenient and might cause you not to examine your motivations as much as you maybe should. The other thing that happens, and this was really interesting and transformative for me, is that you get to experiment with far more of these things than an average person has time for. So if you only get to try three or four time management systems in a year, you might think that the perfect one, the silver bullet, is still out there somewhere. If you spend years trying out hundreds, you do eventually begin to get it through your thick skull, you know, that it's not out there, that this way of managing our time that is going to enable us to do everything that we think we ought to do isn't coming. And so this book is really what happened next, which is when I went through that sort of, oh, this control over time, this kind of mastery of time, it's not possible. And there's something liberating in trying to understand why it isn't possible. So I was very grateful for the opportunity to exhaust the world of personal productivity. Otherwise, I might still today be thinking that there was one system out there I was going to discover next week that was going to solve my life. I love the idea that any of us would really be doing work that solves our own problems or answers our big life questions. Mm. And so it's like you're investing in your own medicine. Oh, totally. Yeah. And not even that, I'm sort of inventing my own medicine. I think I was fairly aware of this when I was writing the book, but it's certainly very clear to me now. I was writing a book I needed to have. You're giving yourself the advice you need to hear. And the book, the voice of the book is actually like about half a step ahead of the person writing it in terms of psychological growth. The book is wiser than me. And then you have to live your way into the book. I sort of had to change my personality a bit in order to be able to finish that book in a good way. So it's totally just me struggling with my own issues. But I think that resonates with people. They find it more useful than if I were to adopt that tone of, I've got my life sorted out and now you lucky people get to follow my example. That I mean, it would be dishonest, but I think it's just ineffective as well. I'm just having all my happiness fibers firing because you just described exactly what my work is. That's what Dumbo Feather, the magazine is. That's what this podcast is. But the way you just articulated resonates so much for me. And I was always like, 
why am I not mature enough to imbibe this wisdom and then just practice the wisdom? <laughs> right, why right, do I have right. to keep repeating it? No, absolutely. And I think as I go on with this, I need to even give up the notion that one day I will have fully merged. Take it for the sake of argument, assume that my book is really wise. I'm not claiming that. <laughs> but like, If we agree for the sake of argument that it is, I certainly feel very unwise compared to it. And of course, it's a book full of ancient philosophers. Of course, they're cleverer than me. And not only do you not personally easily embody every bit of that wisdom, but also I sort of give up on the idea that I'm ever going to get there. It's one of those things that you're constantly working towards, but at the same time, you surrender the notion that you're ever going to reach it. And I think that is just the journey of thinking about it and talking about it with other people and figuring out what resonates with other people is the substance of it. And you have to let go of that idea that one day you're going to wake up and be like, I got here. (laughs) Yeah, and maybe the purpose of wisdom, of creative endeavour, of writing the book, of having this conversation is via osmosis and immersion, we do grow. Mm -hmm. We change. Were you checking your phone? Does that mean you're trying to be productive on this hour? I was checking the time. I was checking the time. (laughs) I'll tell you why I was checking time if you want as well. I was wondering whether my son was going to burst into the room as he goes to school. Yeah, that's so funny, isn't it? We're like trying to put in this square that we're looking at each other and on this podcast and in everyone's ears, this perfect product, but it's all really messy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a mess with a lot of longing and hope baked in. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And to get back to what I was saying before, it's like through that osmosis and immersion and taking in wisdom and learning discernment, we're able to maybe be kinder with ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is something that has really come into the forefront of my mind in some ways since the book, although it's there in the book, I think as well, which is how many of us and me for sure are driven to produce or to try to get handle on our time in other ways out of a kind of aggression towards ourselves on some level, some notion that we need to reach some height that we haven't yet reached of efficiency or productivity or being in command of it all, just in order to reach some baseline level of justifying our existence on the planet. I've always been really affected by a blog post that my friend, the Buddhist meditation teacher, Susan Piver, wrote years ago now with the headline, Getting Things Done By Not Being Mean To Yourself. And it's a good blog post, but it was really the title that lodges itself in my brain over the years. And I see now, just in the last year or so, this notion, it gets called non-coercive productivity. It seems to be really coming into the zeitgeist, this realization that maybe a lot of what we've been doing to try to get on top of everything, it is kind of quite cruel in a way. It's like we're doing something quite strange and unfriendly to ourselves. It's difficult for someone like me who has a natural cringe towards talk of self-compassion and self-care and things like that and doesn't really want to be someone who thinks about the idea of self-compassion a lot. Obviously, partly that's a non-self-compassionate viewpoint to take. One thing I wrote in an email newsletter about a while ago, there is this need, isn't there, to lean into the cringe, to figure out which bits of this conversation or similar conversations make you feel like that's a bit ridiculous, I don't want to go there, and ask what the cause of that reaction is, which may well be that it's precisely what you need and seeking to avoid. Being a bit more friendly to yourself in how you think about your time leads to being friendlier towards other people and it just leads to getting more done really anyway. so I think that's the bit that I'd love to expand on here and get your thoughts around Endeavour. We love all the hero's journey stories where they start at A and they get all the way to Z and I think that thing about time and the fact that for a good life we've got 4,000 weeks, it's harrowing at the start 
I was reading your book and talking about being kind to ourselves around how we approach our time and how we're living mm-hmm. our lives. There's a lot on all of our plates for a huge amount of people. There's the survival space yeah. they're in, just trying to cope and get their heads above water with their time. There's luxury time and luxury beliefs. Mm-hmm. And then there's those who have no choice around time and that lifespan and how they spend it. It's a complex problem. Just to wind back from there for a minute, And then there's being a parent of teenagers and my son has exams this week on the week and he goes, I just need to stay put and focus on procrastinating. (laughs) He had the self-awareness, you know. That's wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And his whole cohort of friends at his new school, they are all high achieving people and he's kind of compelled by the company he keeps. We strive. We have a lot of that thing of being on the ship to sail out to sea and explore new lands. And that's in us as well. We're meaning-making creatures, I guess I'm saying. And at what point do we lose our compass? How do we tell the kids about how to use their time when it's not joyless urgency? Yeah. We can have that powerful, passionate endeavour to create and make and do, but the way that we get there is somehow better. Yeah, it's really interesting. I always feel like there's three stages to this or three attitudes you can take to our limited time. And the first one, I suppose, in a way is probably the most common one is just not thinking about it, trying not to think about it, acting like you had all the time in the world, not striving because it doesn't matter because you act like time is limitless and it's all very slack and doesn't feel like really engaging with the truth of our situation. The second one is that one that you might even get into if you read the title of my book, 4,000 Weeks, and then didn't read the book which is that notion, oh my goodness, life is short. We've got to really squeeze meaning out of every moment. It's the philosophy of carpe diem. You only live once. It's this thousand and one places you must travel before you die books. It's this very intense notion that we've got to self-consciously try to make the most of this very short time. And I think that is very self-punishing as a way to live. And then the third place you can get to, I think I'm beginning to get to, is if you really take seriously how little time we have, and you really admit defeat in the notion that you're ever going to get most things done or experience most things the world has to offer or anything like that, it's not so stressful anymore. Because now you see that it's not really hard to get everything out of a short life. It's actually impossible. And then, for me anyway, enables you to more intensely but in a more sort of friendly to yourself way, strive for a few things because you're not fooling yourself anymore that you've got to do this impossible quantity or reach impossible standards in every area of your life. There's a bittersweetness to it. Poignant, right? It really sucks that we're only here for such a short time on some level. It's totally impossible to do justice to all the things that the world offers. And that's the reason to pour your time and attention into a few of them and to endeavor to get somewhere to make your mark and all the rest of it. It's not a reason for nihilism. It's only despairing if you maintain this notion that value only comes from doing everything or from doing every opportunity. Well, just let go of that definition of value and choose one that is tailored to being a human instead of being a superhuman, I guess. It's very deep what you're actually proposing. That's why you recoil from the self-help. Yeah. This is not a shallow proposition. What you're talking about is a profound acceptance and letting go. Right. And a seeing that acceptance and resignation are completely different, that acceptance is showing up for life. It isn't getting over the fact that you can't have a good life. It's the doorway to a good life in reality. Yeah. It is very deep and I am by no means fully accomplished at doing it in my own life. 
I'm always at pains to stress that this is a productivity technique if you're into that kind of thing, right? This is about action. It isn't about giving up on the possibility of action. It's about really plunging into action. And that's important, I think, because some people are put off by the thought that it's going to be a recipe for doing nothing. I love what you said. Acceptance as a proposition of fullness as something to hold with both hands and be beloved rather Mm -hmm. than resignation, which is a letting go and a hands off. And then I have no agency in that. Therefore, that's the nihilism. I'm part of the flotsam and jetsam of time and none of it means anything. Quite the opposite. No, absolutely. So what question are you sitting with now on the other side of the book? Like what's really emerged for you? Because in that, what are the five things that I will focus on? What's coming up Mm. for you now? Well, I'm still feeling my way into this for sure. It definitely feels like a new phase. I think that whole idea of getting things done without forcing and whether that's how you live into that is a big part of it. I suppose the bigger frame for all this is this question of action. It is this question of, okay, I feel like I figured something out when I wrote that book and I feel like I figured something out that's true. Now, how does one live into that other than by just constantly reminding oneself Mm -hmm. of it? So this question of what the ancient philosophers called praxis, that word got adapted by Marxists, means something slightly different, but the notion of where theory and action meet and what it means to live in the ways that you have figured out you probably want to live and how you cross that gap between knowing about things and embodying them. And a big part of that is just literally physically embodying them and living in a more embodied way. Has that happened for you because you've now moved to the countryside? Has that been part of... I think it is part of it, but it's a slow process. I am writing in this book as someone, and I think in many cases for my fellow people who have lived at least part of their lives as brains on a stalk, as they say, really doubling down on the power of the intellect to get them through life and to organize things and to cause what success they have and stuff. So it's definitely a long, slow process. But yeah, I think being here in the countryside is a part of that. It's unavoidable. Even if you did want to spend all day in a pure bubble of cogitation, you can't do it because there are 30 hens about six feet from my window, for one thing. And then if I step out of the door, I'm I'm engaging, whether I like it or not, with this unyielding landscape. I also think it's important to me that the particular countryside that we came to, the North York Moors, is relatively bleak and forbidding. And it's not that sort of picture postcard English village that people think of the English countryside as, but that's actually the South We're hardened northerners here. Yeah, as I say, you can overdo this, but there is something about that encounter with a landscape that feels unyielding. I think there's something really interesting about how in the modern online digital phenomenology, it feels like you can walk a thousand miles in an instant because you can go a thousand miles away, find out what's happening there. There is a godlike sense to the way in which we metaphorically move around cyberspace and nothing could be more different than when you're reminded that if you want to go a mile down the road to do something, you have to walk a mile down the road, right? I love the inconvenience. I've got two things here which are talking about a quote from the book. Whenever we succumb to distraction, we're attempting to flee a painful encounter with our finitude, with the human predicament of having limited time. And then this other bit, on the contrary, surreptitiously checking your phone beneath the dinner table is what you do because it's hard to focus on the conversation, because listening takes effort and patience and a spirit of surrender. So for me, both of those really hurt in a way. And as a parent, when you're talking about this hardened Yorkshire country versus (laughs) verdant, you know, there's this thing about distraction and surrender and pain 
We're avoiding yeah. pain. Productivity yeah. helps us avoid pain and distraction helps us avoid pain. How do we know how to strengthen those muscles without being weird? I guess what I'm trying to say in all of that section that you quoted from is we spend so much time, I think, rightly blaming the social media economy and the attention economy for stealing our attention that we forget that actually we're giving in willingly to that theft, that what's going on when we succumb to distraction is that something about the meaningful thing that you were trying to do, I mean, not always because you might be doing a meaningless thing, but the mysterious facts that we seem to be very distractible when working on precisely those things we thought we really wanted to accomplish. I think is because those meaningful activities trigger all sorts of unpleasant emotions because we don't know if we have the time to finish them. We don't know if we have the skill to finish them. We don't know how people will respond. If it's an important conversation you have to have with a friend or a spouse, you don't know how it will go. You don't know if it's going to leave you feeling emotionally vulnerable. The stakes are high and it's all a bit uncertain. And so we very understandably flee into a world where that isn't the case. And I'm incredibly aware in myself, I've got a lot better at not succumbing to social media distractions. But on those occasions, thankfully not too frequent, where I am in a huge turmoil of something, incredibly cross or incredibly worried about something like, I'm conscious then going onto certain social media platforms is a soothing act. And I don't even want to condemn that. Maybe that's the best thing to do at those extremes of totally. emotion. I have a personal question. How much inner work have you done? How do you define that? Very good question. Now, I'll no. give you my response to what I think that means, oh, yeah. which is, I guess, therapy above all, and then journaling and meditation. Yeah, um, I like therapy because there's another person reflecting back to you and yeah. mirroring and helping you dig deeper or maybe look at blind spots and biases yeah. and cobwebby corners. Therapy would be my... The thought that springs to mind is, yeah, I've done a fair amount of therapy and a lot of journaling and a fair amount of spiritual type things that I, also that I've written about. I also think that my writing just is that as well. If inner work is anything, it was figuring out what I felt about the topics I was writing about in that book. So it's not demarcated as that, but it certainly counts. Just because we were talking about the discomfort, how to live a meaningful life. So with how yeah. to live a meaningful life, I would argue you need self-awareness so that you can yeah. regulate your emotional responses in time. Because yeah. as Viktor Frankl said, between the stimulus and the response is a breath. Yeah. That breath stretches out the more inner work that you do. That's more spacious. So you don't get more time than anyone, but it's the quality of your life. The quality of that time becomes less reactionary by yeah. a percentage or you can own it more. I totally see that. I think that is the role of writing for me as well. So from speaking strictly personally, I think that's what it's all about. I think I was going to say about the distraction thing and how you work those muscles of leaning into the pain of doing things that matter. The first thing that made a big impact on me is this realization that almost all the time, pain is a pretty extreme word to use for what we're talking about here. And so I often use the word discomfort in oh, this yeah. context. And I'm reminded also of that great translation of the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is usually translated into English as life is suffering. Somebody wanting to make the same point, I remember translating it as life is bothersome. I think it's really important to think in those terms, right? Because awful lot of the time when, yes, in some philosophical sense, I'm escaping onto social media to avoid the pain of focusing on work I care about. It's mild discomfort is what it is. We'd do almost anything to avoid that. Right. But the thing is, if you can gently and in a friendly spirit, take yourself by the hand and nonetheless stick at it for five minutes you will see very quickly that it's not the kind of pain that kills you. So I think that is a useful thing to remember. We're in the world of things like jumping into a cold swimming pool or eating a very spicy curry. 
it's discomfort in a sense, but it is not agonizing pain. And those two examples, I think, are useful as well, because the result is, I feel like the word that comes to me a lot in this context is bracing, which is maybe something that you have more familiarity with if you live where I live. And the trip to the beach standardly means walking into a very strong headwind and being rained on. But there is something about that encounter with discomfort and developing just enough strength to move forward into the next step of the experience that is energizing. There's something good about jumping into a cold swimming pool. It's not just unpleasant and you wish you didn't have to do it. That encounter with something that isn't just comfort is empowering and energizing. For me, that's always the word bracing. I love you're talking about framing and I think framing is incredibly important and that we use words really specifically and Mm -hmm. wisely and that we use words that help us move forward with whatever tone we want to move forward with. But that time is really around framing and it keeps coming up for me while you're talking. You use this, I think it's in the book, Warren Buffett's. The idea, probably not actually originating with Warren Buffett, is that if you want to figure out what to do in your life, you should list your top 25 goals in descending order from one to 25. Every single thing you think is important to do in your life. And then the top five of those are the ones that you should pour your time and energy into. The next 20, which most of us might think those are the ones to just kind of get round to if you get a spare moment. Those are the nice to haves. In this story, Warren Buffett <laughs> says those are the 20 to avoid like the plague because those are the middle grade priorities in your life, the things that are appealing enough to you that you'll get lured into spending your time on them, but not actually the most important things. I don't live by that specific 25 goal exercise, but I think I do try to live by this reminder that there are things I really, really love to do in my life that are the sources of the most meaning. And then there are things that I sort of have to do, but they're kind of tedious or lots of things that I don't do because they wouldn't be any fun. It's the middle ground. It's the projects that are kind of fun or kind of worth doing. I think all of us have experiences of some friendships that we keep nurturing a bit, but they're not really delivering much for either person in the friendship. Meanwhile, of course, they're taking away time from other activities and other friendships that maybe are the location of that meaning. So it's that awkward thing about, like Elizabeth Gilbert says, not just saying no to all the things you didn't want to do in the first place, but actually the true art of saying no is realizing that you're going to have to say no to some things you do want to do that would be perfectly okay uses of somebody's time, but you're going to have to say no to them anyway. This is going to feel like a random question, but it's not probably because you know where it's coming from. It, thinking about productivity as being driven by the economy, driven by this mm. system that we've put and designed ourselves into, which as Robert Kennedy famously said, GDP excluded all the things that made life worth living right? and included things like car accidents and the number of hospital beds that are occupied. Yep. So do you reckon if we had something like a universal basic income, that that would profoundly change how humans not only spend our time, but live into endeavour? I personally don't think it will take away striving. I think it will take away stress. What do you think? This topic has come up a bit. I just feel so underqualified to talk about the potential positive or unintended negative consequences of UBI. I don't know. Obviously, the strongest philosophical argument against it has to do with the idea that people actually need work as meaning and that the idea that everybody should be employed and not be given any incentives to not be employed is in the service of people doing the jobs as well. As your question excellently pinpoints, that makes an assumption that work in the sense of the work of our lives and paid work are the same thing. 
it's already incredibly obvious that that isn't true. Like there's plenty of work going on in the maintenance of homes and families and unpaid care work and voluntary work and work that people do to make their gardens look beautiful. I think it's Freud I'm agreeing with that we do actually need work. It suggests very low confidence in human beings, doesn't it, to imply that if you took care of the basics of people's income, most people would then fail to do anything. Yeah, it's also about what are the incentives and disincentives for all of us to make the world. Yeah, I just go back and forth. You know, I'm just arguing against myself now, but I don't think that the lure of making more money is necessarily always a bad incentive structure. When people say, oh, you need all these economic incentives for people to be motivated, I think there's truth in that. And I think there's no harm in being motivated by money automatically. Those rather base rewards can be the thing that motivate people to do certain things. But just this idea that that is applicable to everyone at all points in life, if they didn't have to struggle to put food on the table, they would instantly become time wasters. I don't see any reason to assume that. Yeah, because it's in the book where you talk about how the industrial age just started to toggle a monetary value to time spent on the fact. And so you get this experience that people have even when they earn a lot of money. I write about in the context of the billable hour in the world of American legal profession, where people who are really at the top of the tree in terms of their income experience this psychological problem that they don't enjoy their work and that it is really hard to value time in any other way than whether they can count it as a billable hour to the client. They're not even motivated to do their work as quickly and efficiently as possible because what they're doing is billing hours to clients and then actually becomes very hard to see the value in a family meal or going and seeing your kid's performance at school because you are hounded, not because you're a terribly greedy, avaricious, bad person, but just because you exist in this system that dictates that the value of what you do has to cash out into more and more money. And it doesn't even matter if your personal philosophy is not that money is everything. That's how the organization and the industry in which you're working judges things. So if you want to excel in your work and be rewarded with promotions and good opportunities, which is a very noble desire, you are going to have to still end up following the logic that money is the point of doing everything. And it's kind of not even your fault. You might well not believe that deep in your heart. So anything that pushes back against that is beneficial. So how do we get back the joy of our lives and the juice of our time when so much around us contextually is trying to squeeze it out? And how do we reclaim that? What are some ways that people can? It does depend on your situation, right? So the thing that we can all do regardless of our circumstances is you can make this psychological dissenting move. So you may conceivably be someone who really just has to spend all day every day doing stuff that you hate because that really is the least worst option for you in the generally terribly problematic economy and society that we've created. But even in that case, you don't need to fall for this illusion that you can do an impossible amount or that doing that impossible amount will make you happy or that the path to peace of mind with time comes from beating yourself up into the point where you can do more work than there are hours in the day. You can understand that maybe you're going to stick with a job that you don't like because actually it's important for values that you have. You want to be able to support your family and there are no other options for you right now. So you're going to find meaning in it in an instrumental sense. That's maybe cold comfort, but it's an important start point to see that you don't need to buy into the message that we're getting, that if impossible demands are being made on you, the trick is to somehow manipulate yourself into a person who can do an impossible amount of things. And that's where happiness and peace of mind lies for all of us. There is an inner move you can make regardless of the absolute awfulness of your circumstances. 
But then I think that everyone who isn't in that situation of absolutely indentured servitude just to stay fed and sheltered is to realize most all of us do have probably a little bit more room for maneuver in this situation than we think. So it's a question of doubting that voice that says you've absolutely got to stay at the office another hour or everything will go completely wrong. Or that if you don't maintain inbox zero week after week after week, you're a very bad person. And just finding the space to rest for a short time or do one of the things that used to energize you when you were a kid or finally get around to one of the things that you know you really want to be doing or relationships you want to be nurturing just for 10 minutes. Start simple, start slow, but not to wait until you feel like you're in control of your time or like you've cleared all the decks or like you finally figured life out and now you can become the kind of person who spends lots of time nurturing friendships, going mountain biking and taking a nap, but just doing a little bit of that now. And this is crucial, not expecting it to feel great because people like us in our culture, when we stop for 10 minutes because we know that we need to, or we do something for pure fun, turns out to not be fun at first because our minds are completely formed in favor of keeping going and doing more and checking more items off the list. It's that idea of paying yourself first with time, as has been said. You have to just do some of the things that you know are part of a meaningful life now, even if just for a short time, rather than waiting till you're ready to do them. I love it. Talking about framing before and now I'm hearing you talk about reinvesting in nourishing feedback loops. Right. That's a really good way of putting it. Yes, absolutely. And you have to wait for the feedback loop to get going. If the feedback loop is you are good because you ticked off your list, you have to stop right. that and actually opt into a different feedback loop. That's hard. Absolutely. The example that's springing to my mind just quickly, something I find very nourishing is writing three pages of just random stuff in a notebook first thing in the morning. I'm not saying anyone listening ought to do that because then that becomes a new rule you're trying to follow. But if it is something that you find nourishing, morning after morning, I wake up and I think I can't afford the time for this. I've got to charge on and do some other things before my son wakes up and the day begins and la la la. And so you do actually have to get used to the feeling that for the first three or four minutes of that process, it doesn't feel great in order to get that feedback loop going of like, oh yeah, this makes the whole day better. Yeah. This is something that is a meaningful way to spend my time. I've technique. just started doing morning pages. I've never oh, done brilliant. that before. How good great. are I? I'm amazed. It's the only habit that I never end up falling off the wagon of, really, because it just makes such a big difference. I love that you never fall off the wagon. I fall off all the wagons. I fall off every other wagon, just to be clear. Um, It is the one thing where the benefit is so unignorable. Even I am going to stick with it. I love it. So we're talking uh, about the morning pages, which are in the artist's way. They're an amazing practice. Yeah, I think I've adapted it a bit. I never think of it as a very creativity-focused thing for me. The content is much more therapy than art, I suppose, but whatever. The whole point is it's not censored. And to finish on this note, because this is a quote in the book, which is also around discomfort, you write, the struggle for certainty is an intrinsically hopeless one, which means you have permission to stop engaging in it. Right. Do you remember writing that? Yeah, that's about planning for the future, right? It's about understanding that you can never be certain about what's coming. But that idea in a different form permeates everything I want to try to say about time, not just certainty about the future, but also the idea that you could get through everything on your to-do list, the idea that you could feel fully qualified to do the things that you do in life. Again and again, we feel like these are very hard tasks, very difficult things to pull off to get everything done, to feel certain about the future, to feel fully qualified. And I always want to say, no, they're not very hard. It's worse than that. They're impossible. And in that move from it's really difficult to it's impossible, 
there's actually such freedom because then you can be like, there's always going to be too much to do. I'm always going to feel uncertain about the future. I'm always going to feel a little bit like a fraud and like I should be more qualified than I am for my role. And then you can just let that be and get on with doing the cool things with your life instead of trying to solve this problem. It's great to be able to see that certain human problems are not incredibly difficult to solve, but actually insoluble. We've got a lot of big, wicked problems to solve together at the moment on the planet, right. in the world. And I think that yeah. what you're saying is it's like sensible. It's getting mm-hmm. back to we have our work to do when we are not excused from doing it. It's a Talmudic term. And we have to do it at human scale and human pace with humanity towards ourselves and each other. And it's one foot in front of the other. And all the best artists and all the best creative people and high achievers would say, ultimately, it's that you wake up and you do the morning pages and you live into the doing. You eat an elephant one bite at a time. It's a terrible analogy, but that's... uh, (laughs) Don't eat elephants. Nobody do that. Just one last thought. It's a big one, but I wonder if you have the answer with all that you've been pondering. Um, (laughs) I'll try. If it is your last moment, you're on your deathbed and you look back, what do you want to be able to say that you did or that you didn't do (laughs) in that one life that you experienced? I could itemize that answer, but I think in terms of the things and the people, but the thing that really binds it all together for me is I would want to be able to say that I didn't hang back from life or that I eventually got over my hanging back from life, that I showed up, that I was as there as it was possible for me, given my particular psychology and my background and everything. I think that's it, really. Beautiful. And the book helps that for a whole lot of other people as well. It helped me while I was reading it. It'll stay with me. Really beautiful work, Oliver. Thank you so much. That was Barry speaking with Oliver Berkman. Oliver's book is 4,000 Weeks, and it's well worth the read. I loved it. Speaking of a good read, don't forget to look out for issue number 71 of Dumbo Feather, which is out in mid-November. Subscribe today at dumbofeather.com so that you never miss an issue. Until next time, be well and have a great week.